0: Take your Bibles, please, and firstly, in Acts chapter 2, I want to keep those continuing on exactly from last week. Keep in mind the two aspects here of the death of the Lord Jesus, for what we are doing is we are considering the final days, the final day really, and ultimately the final night in the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus as he faces the cross. The wonderful work that he accomplishes in his death, burial, and through his resurrection. And there are two sides to what is going on at the cross. So turn to Acts chapter (coughs) 2. Acts chapter 2. Verse 22 there. Ye men of Israel, hear. Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. One, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And everything we've read and will read about what happened there before the cross and at the cross was all in the hands of God in his predetermined plan and purpose of blessing, delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The other side is, you, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now that's the activities and actions of Satan. The other is the purposes and plans and permissive will of God, verse twenty-four, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. And we looked at those two aspects as we came to the final night in the life of the Lord Jesus. We saw the preparation of hell, ready to see him dead. We saw the preparation of heaven. As the Lord Jesus, in the calmness of his own spirit, on the Passover night, took his place at table. Outside there was seething hatred, and the powers of evil were gathering themselves together to do all that they could, that they might take him by their wicked hands and crucify and slay him. You had the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the rulers of the people. There they are. They've got themselves together over there. And then you've got Judas and he's in the inner cabinet, one of the disciples, and he is over there with his black, treacherous heart, which he's had with him all the time, for he was an unwashed creature. And then you have the activities of the devil himself. And the devil enters into the heart of Simon, Judas, Iscariot. And then Judas, he goes and he gets together with the group over here that are plotting and planning to kill him. And you see this terrible gathering of evil, a trinity of evil, as they lift themselves up against the Lord and against his Christ. They are going to see him dead. Satan has planned it. He's been waiting and he's been wanting. And in his folly, he's going to see him dead, whatever he does. And then this folly. It is folly because Actually, through that death, he will be destroyed himself. Satan, by that very action, will work out his own destruction. But meanwhile, you see, God is working out his own eternal purposes. And you look at the cross and you think, well, it's an event in which Satan had his way, Satan did his work, and Satan won a victory. Well, he didn't. He lost the day. He lost it forever. He lost it forever in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He thought he would rule forever over the world as king. Never, never, never. He lost his throne that day. He lost his power that day. And indeed he settled his own doom that day when Christ arose in the glorious victory of a work that had been done to destroy him. We read it this morning. Who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, just we started to look at the other side of it. What God was doing in those days and in those by that action and how he was being delivered by the determinate counsel and full knowledge of God. And so we were in John chapter 12, where we will continue at the moment. John and chapter 12. And I want you to notice the way the Lord Jesus speaks of his death. And here we are right up against, we're right at the end of the week here, in, in the just moving into the upper room in chapter 13 on the Passover night, but just what he says before it actually happens. Look at the verses as he comments on the death. He says in verse twenty three, all right? You can imagine the conversation going on amongst those you know, the, the Pharisees and the rulers of the people and and oh it's terrible. Judas plotting and planning and money changing hands and you can almost hear the devilish cackle of the Satan himself in the background as to all this going on. It's all there, isn't it? The contrast, terrific contrast. But this is what the Lord Jesus says. Look at verse 23. They just come to him and they said, look, there's some Greeks come, they want to see you. And he lifts himself up, he says, the hour is come, this, we're at this time now, that the Son of Man should be glorified. You know, it's the, the complete opposite of shame, is it? The hour is come. The Son of Man should be glorified. Is that enough? Verse 28. He says there, Father, glorify thy name. In other words, in this, what lies ahead of us in the work of his death and in his resurrection, it will be for the glorying of himself and for the glory of God the Father. What else does he say about his death? Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Ah, Satan says, now is the judgment of my uttermost foe. But no, it's now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Can you see the overthrow of Satan, who thought he'd lift himself up and would have all men under his power, and judgment would fall down on the one that he hated so desperately. And so the Lord Jesus has described his death in terms of glory. It will be a time for his own glory, that was in verse 23. It will be a time for the glory of the Father's name, that is in verse 28. It'll be a time for the judgment of this world. It'll be a time for the prince of this world to be cast out. And it will be a time when he will be lifted up and will draw all men unto me. It's not shame, it is glory. Glory for the Son of Man shall be glorified. And when you, as we mentioned last week, the idea of being glorified is to be displayed in the true magnificence and greatness of who the person really is. It's not now clouded over, but it's revealed and can be seen by all. And in the work that lay ahead, as he pondered it on the last day of his life of and earthly ministry and looked onward to the cross, he said, this is going to be a time when the world will really know who I am and see me not just humbled and humiliated, but in the full glory of the fact that in my death I will be seen and known to be the Lamb of God who is bearing away the sin of the world. In my resurrection it will be clearly declared that I am the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead, the victor who has overcome death, the Saviour who has died for the sinner. The child that was born was the son that was given and from him will spring the whole race of the redeemed like the corn of wheat which fell into the ground. It will not stay alone but because it went into the ground and it died much, 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 much blessing will come from it. And as this prophet said, you shall, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of Jehovah will prosper in his hand. He will be seen to be who he really is. And in his ascension, King of kings and Lord of lords. So you see that, glorify. Let it be seen who I really am. And more than that, he says there in verse 28 in prayer, Father, glorify thy name. And if you go to the end of chapter 13, they'll come to that later, that prayer is answered. The Father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. In other words, the Lord is saying, this hour is going to be the very hour when who God really is will be displayed in splendor. And you look at the cross and you say, what is God like? Who is this God that the Christians talk about? And you look at the cross and you say, he's a God who would have all men to be saved. And you stand and you look at the cross and you follow its events and you say, He is a God who is holy. He is a God who will judge sin. He is a God who was prepared to do judgment even when it meant the judging of his own son as if he were the actual sinner. He would do it when the Lord Jesus took upon himself the iniquity of us all and stood in the place of the sinner condemned, bearing the guilt and the weight of sin God says it's no different. I will judge because I judge sin and I am a holy God. And if you can understand and you will go through it later, this is the things that happened at the cross. It showed that God was a God who would have all to be saved and reached through the sacrifice of his son. He was a God who was holy and just and a God of judgment and a God of justice. And as you stand and you look at the cross, and you see a God who spared not his own Son, you say, this God is truly a God of love. You see, so glorify your name, he says. In other words, let it be seen that through my death and resurrection, who God really is, what is God really like. And it was all answered, and it was all done. And indeed, he says to the Father, glorify thy name. But the Father says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again in verse 28. He says, I brought you into the world and when the child was born and the infant Christ was there the angels came and sang glory to God in the highest. For 33 and a half years the Lord Jesus has moved in the world doing the work that the Father gave him to do and in John 17 at the very final climax of his life he says, Father... I have glorified Thee on the earth. Now, Father, as it were, as I move into death, into this final great work, Father, glorify Thy name. Yes, He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Romans chapter 5. It's a verse we sometimes miss out. But you only need to go at the tomb. Go to the tomb. You only need to, as it were, go with the women. You see the stone rolled away and you see the tomb is empty. And you go inside, and inside there, there are two angels. God has sent his heavenly messengers and put glory on the place of death with the whiteness of their raiments, the emptiness of the tomb, and the wonder of the message. He is not here, but he is risen. And there was glory in that resurrection. Glory to God. Now look at verse 31. He says, now, at this point in time, this cross will be the judgment of this world. Now, you look at that and you say, well, fire and brimstone didn't fall on the world at the cross. It wasn't like Sodom and Gomorrah. So, what does it mean, now is the judgment of this world? The word judgment there has, in its essence, the meaning of it will be clearly seen. It will be clearly defined and exposed. The world of evil will be seen for what it really is, what motivates it and who motivates it. And the world through the death and rejection of the Lord Jesus has been declared to be guilty before God. You get the idea? Sinful man in a a, a sinful world. They took God's king... And for a crown they gave him thorns. For a throne they gave him a cross. And they declare ke- clearly their sinful heart and nature and who they were serving at the cross. And the Lord says, here in my death it will be clearly disclosed the world is guilty before God. In my resurrection it will be clearly declared that sin will once and for all, will be judged, and I will reign supreme over all. Now is the judgment of this world. As Simeon said, when he took the baby in his arms in the temple and he worshipped the Lord, and he spoke of the child being for the rise and fall of many in Israel, and he said, and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, judged, they'll be judged, they'll be exposed in the courthouse as it were as to what the crime is really all about and the world will be declared as guilty before god and now he says is the prince of this now shall the prince of this world be cast out Mm -hmm. satan's doom was sealed in the death and resurrection of the lord jesus christ because in that death His power was broken. Through that resurrection, His power was forever broken. See, He had tremendous power. He had the power to make the whole of humanity hold them in sin. And because they were held in the guilt and practice of sin, they were under the sentence of death. They were under the sentence of death, not only in the sense that they must one day die and lie in a grave, but they were spiritually dead before God. They had nothing of the life of God within them, nothing of eternal life within them. Cut off from God in life to be finally doomed and cut off in death. But in that death, the Lord Jesus took the reason why mankind was bound and held by Satan. That is because of sin. He took that sin, he laid it upon himself. God himself took the sin of the world and laid it on the Lord Jesus Christ and he treated him as if he was the sinner. And the Lord Jesus stood as a sacrifice and as a victim, as a substitute in the place of the sinner And he bore the weight of that judgment that was due to it. He carried the guilt and the stain that belonged to it. And he died in the place of a sinner as if he were really that one. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was made sin for us. He who knew no sin. Meaning he was made to be that sin offering. And once he had paid the price of justice once he had paid the penalty for sin once he had borne the guilt for sin god says i am satisfied justice has been satisfied and if a sinner will come to me and trust in the work that you have done then that person is set free forever from the penalty of sin and from the meaning of death from the power of Satan. The prince of this world no longer has power over the human race for everyone who will trust Christ as Savior will find that his power is broken and he can bring them into that death spiritually and eternally never never again. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who has cast out the prince of this world in the work that he did at the cross and the resurrection. And in the day to come he will destroy him completely. In the meantime, Satan would hold captive those that are blinded by sin. But the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that declares him to be king over all the earth and king over every soul, the gospel that tells you that he's the substitute for sinners, his death was a vicarious sacrifice to break Satan's power, that gospel is setting men free, setting them free and breaking the power of Satan over their lives, and over their future eternal blessing. You see, this is an hour where God is going to be glorified. This is the hour when the prince of this world is set upon that course He's, he's being cast out, and his doom is settled, because sin has been settled, because atonement's been made, and sinners can be righteously forgiven, so that you as a Christian, truly saved by the grace of God, because you must be to be a Christian... You you can say, you know, I hear the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah findeth none. You see, it was through the work of the cross that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, of the people of God, is cast out of heaven. You remember when the the picture of the man-child ascends up into heaven. Michael and his angels go to war with the devil and his angels, and they're cast out of heaven down into the earth. And you see, the accuser can no longer get God's ear up there. He, you know, you know, he, he can say, "Well, look at that son of Paul Isles down there. He's trying to preach the gospel and tell people about a savior about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ." But you know, I know stuff about him. He can't even get God's ear anymore. Not anymore, because it's true those sins, but they've been forgiven in the blood of Christ. My guilt has been borne by Jesus when alone at Calvary. You see what he's saying now? So he says, what he's saying is that the ruler of this world has been cast out. His grip has finally been absolutely broken. Then he says, and I, if I be lifted up out of the earth, I will draw all men unto me. He says, ah, the cross is a message, will be a message of forgiveness for a whole world. It won't be just limited, I repeat this constantly, to one single nation where blessing will come. The message of the cross, of salvation through Christ alone, of the forgiveness of sin, of the breaking of Satan's power, of the bringing in of the wonder of a new rule and a new life, eternal life. That message will go to all nations the nations that Satan previously held in his grip, under pagan religion, idolatry, ignorance. He says, I'm going to bring in, through my being lifted up, a covenant of wonderful blessing that will extend to every soul that's redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, where's the shame in all of this, eh? (laughs) Aye, if I be lifted up out of the earth. And I was pondering the meaning of that being lifted up out of the earth. And I had to go, of course, first of all, to Calvary and see the Lord Jesus lifted up. Satan says, I'll lift him up as a spectacle. God says, I'll lift him up as a sacrifice. God says, I'll lift him up, as it were, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole in the wilderness. When in the camp the snakes were biting and people were dying, doomed to die, in the midst of a world that's been bitten by Satan and sin, Doomed to die, I will lift him up, and whosoever looks, it says, shall live. You remember the old hymn we sing? There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Oh, then look in a look unto him and be saved unto him who has died on the tree. Lift it up. A spectacle? Shame. Ah, a sacrifice, and that's glory. See, God is at work at the cross. Satan thinks he's in control. Never, never. God is exalting his son as the sinner's only saviour. Then you think of the resurrection, right? He was lifted up at the resurrection. Do you realise that he was lifted up? It struck me like this. He speaks of himself as spending three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See that? And he says, I have I be lifted up in resurrection. Remember how he walked before them. He said, in <clears throat> that resurrection day, he was lifted up out of the earth and through that resurrection, breaking sin's power and death's power, he can draw all men unto him. But it's more than that. It's from the lifting up shame but sacrifice, lifted up from death to resurrection and lifted up from earth to glory. That's First Timothy, isn't it? He ascended up on high. He was received up in glory. And up there in glory, as we've pondered his majesty, as we've pondered his authority, as we've seen his supremacy, magnified his deity, wondered at his saviorhood, thinking of his salvation, he can save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. Hallelujah! What a savior. So he says all this. He says "I." He says in verse 33, he was signifying what death he should die. Well, we've seen that. What a death. Now, in, you, some would limit that to saying he was just signifying, telling them that he was going to be crucified. I think it goes far beyond that. I think he was signifying in that last burst of teaching there, he was signifying that in that death it would be seen who he really was. He'd be glorified. In that death it would be seen who God really was. God the Father would be glorified. In that death, it would be judgment, the the exposing of sin and evil in the world. In that death, he would break Satan's power and dethrone him. In that death, he would make blessing available to all. And in that death, he would make that exodus out of the world. Very well, now come to chapter 13. Come now to chapter 13. Because in chapter 13 it says just what i was trying to say there verse one before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of the world to the father see that he knows that this hour is not the hour just of his decease when you use the word decease, it sounds like somebody dies and it's over oh no It was his hour of his departure. It's the man of transfiguration language. Remember? Moses and Elias, they were speaking of his decease. It's they're speaking of his departure. Look at verse 3. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he was come from God, and he went to God. Now that's how you approach the happenings of the upper room in the final night of the Lord Jesus. I want to give you one point in events just so that you follow the sequence. You first have spoken of his death and then it's the last time that he speaks to the people. Verse 36 of chapter 12. Go back to that. All right? It says this, that he spoke these things and he departed and he hid himself from them. He actually hid himself from them, and you think, what's going on here? Well, you remember how constantly, in those mornings of that last week of his life, he came into the temple and he taught the people, and they came very early in the morning to hear him. Now he's at that point, that final point of his ministry to the world, and he actually hides himself from them. You say, why ever would he do that? Well, you see, his earthly ministry is over. His message has been told. It says quite clearly in that final message, he pleads with them in verse 35 and 36, telling them that, look, the light of God has been among you, and it's among you just for a little while longer only. Will you not come to that light? Will you not walk in that light? Will you not become children of light while the light is among you? He makes, as it were, that. Final call. Whosoever will, let him come. That final plea, come unto me, or ye that labour and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. And he's got nothing more to say. The time has come for the end of his ministry, for the final call before his rejection. Come and walk in the light. Then he turns and he hides himself from them. Because he's got nothing else to say to them. He's got no other message to give them. He's got nothing more he can do for them at that point. Because he has done many mighty works. He's given many mighty proofs. There's nothing more he can give but what he's already given. And he hides himself from them. And then it says in verse is it 37, But though he had done so many miracles, yet he they believed not on him. In verse 37, they did not believe. And if you read verse 38 and onwards, you get to the point where you find they could not believe. Because having rejected all that he was, all that he said, and all that he had done, and every plea that he had given, and still said no, they shut themselves up to unbelief and left themselves under Satan's grip and blindness. And he says, who hath believed our report? They've got hard hearts now and stiff necks and minds that are blinded. I can give you no more but tell you the story of the kingdom of the grace of God and the great work I'm going to do. You know something? There comes a time when God turns to a world that he's pleaded with and a world that he's waited for and a world in which he's exhibited his power and his grace and he says, it's enough. It, It is enough. I have nothing more to offer and you are shut up to judgment. Now that happens, you might say, generally in the world. I'm sorry, but it happens in the lives of individuals. It is a terrible thing to grow up or to be someone who's come and heard the gospel. It's a terrible thing to then go through the understanding of it, to see the demonstrations of what it does for other people in salvation. And you yourself may be to have even felt the conviction of your own sin and yet the final analysis you say no, it's not for me. Well, I can tell you now, the apostle says it's impossible to renew again to to repentance people who have felt and heard and seen the power of God. These people have felt and heard and seen the power of God. They say No. And the Lord says, well, very well, I'll shut you up to your unbelief and you'll be hardened in your heart. It's an awful thing. I always remember listening to a preacher, and it was in Scotland, actually, in a tent meeting it was, an evangelical meeting. He told a terrible story of how when he was a young lad, he and a friend decided to go to a meeting, like go to a church, go to a, a tent meeting like they had in those days, just like we were sitting in 50, 60 years ago. And he said, you know, that night was the night when he really was convicted of his sin." And he, he got out of his seat and he went to talk to the preacher afterwards to, to find out more about the way of salvation. And for some reason or other, he and his friend just parted company from then on. He said, I, "I hardly saw him." And he said, "I met him 25 years later." And I said, "I must bring up the subject of what happened in the tent that night." And he spoke about him getting saved. And he said, "I, I you were there. We were. You know, where did you go?" And he said, "Well, he said, um, he said I was there that night." And he said, I too went out the back and I said to God, no, it's not for me. And he said, you know, I've never been troubled about my soul since in 25 years. You see, there's a time when God says no. Sorry, God says no. Very solemn there. And that's exactly the picture you've got here. Meanwhile, in chapter 13, having left the crowd behind, as it were, he now turns into the upper room and remember in Luke 22 we saw the Lord Jesus in the midst of all the furore and all the hate and all the disturbance. He goes into the he just tells them, you know, go and follow that man with a pitcher of water. Go into the house that he enters, make the place ready, the room's there. And then when the hour has come he sits down at table with them. <clears throat> and I want you to see something, there's lessons here, just quiet little lessons along the way. Verse 13, he, before the feast of the Passover, right? He's taken his place at table. Verse 2, verse 3, I should say, knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. And then he rises from supper. Verse 4, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel and he girded himself. He pours water into the basin. He begins to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel wherein he was girded. Now, what he actually does here, you see, normally you would come to a meal, you would sit down, and they would, in the Passover, they lay at the table on their left side, left side, right, in a certain, a U shape like that, where all could see each other, and the host would be at the top of the U. And before the meal began, a slave would come in. You know, the lowest of society... Than nobody, and he would just, thanklessly really, he would wash their feet because they were covered in dirt and dust from the road so that those eating the meal would be more comfortable and can recline more comfortably. Now the Lord Jesus, this hadn't happened. No slave had come. The Lord Jesus, you know, he just at that instant took the place of a slave. At that instant he took the task of a slave. At that instant he, he stooped, you know, he went out of sight as it were. At that instant, he humbled himself. And at that instant, he went on to serve. It was not an easy task to do this. He stooped, and he served. No, it wasn't an easy task. As he went around one by one and had to sort out an expostulating Peter. And then maybe finally, I don't know where, he got to the feet of a Judas. And he knew exactly what that man had in his heart. And he knew the plot that he was laying in. The plot that he had made and the filthy money that he received. I mean, was it in his pocket while he was sitting there at the table, right? And the Lord Jesus, just in in humility, he bows and he serves even a Judas. Then he turns around and he says to them, what I've just done is exactly what you should be doing. Fellow believer, we should be stooping and serving one another. Stooping and serving one another in the Christian service. And it is not an easy task to serve the people of God. I mean, it's fine if you think you get praise for it, it's fine if you think you get recognition for it. It's fine if you think you'll get some kudos out of it. But a slave got none of that. None of it. Nobody said to the slave, Oh, thank you, sir, and escorted him to the door. He never got a rise in his wages because he never got any. You see that he was still a slave afterwards, demeaned, debased. And I want to say this. One, it's not an easy thing to serve the people of God. Don't be expecting recognition, praise, or even gratitude. Serve God's people because you are being like the master. They need to be served. Don't do it and say, well, now you should respect me. Now you ought to recognize me. You sort of would expect people to be grateful to me. It's not like that. A slave gets no such thing. He that would be great, let him become the servant or the slave of all. True greatness is to stoop and to serve, not to stand and to rise. Sorry, to stoop and to serve, to slave, to work unseen, and to serve unnoticed, and to serve the people of God because they are the people of God, warts and all. Huh? Smelly feet, sharp tongues, maybe even big boots, maybe even a Judas, but you serve anyway, because the master did, and he says, I'm going, I'm not here to do it, it's your responsibility, and I want to encourage anyone who's serving God's people here, and we all should be serving one another. You know, I want to encourage you, don't get discouraged. You say, but they're not grateful. That's fine. That just—that's not the point. Okay, it's not the point. You say, but they bite. Yes, they do. You say they don't deserve it. No, they don't. <laughs> you say people engineer their own troubles. They certainly do. They won't listen, and that's very often true. You just go on and serve. Stoop. Get it. Serve. Slave. Keep that lesson in mind. let continue on in the chapter. He takes the thing even further. He says in verse 33, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. But he said, you can't come. So he said, I'm going away and I'm going to give you a new commandment. It's very much linked with the activities that he did in showing them they must wash one another's feet. In other words, he's saying, you must do your fellow Christian good. He says, I will give you this new commandment that ye love One another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one towards another. If you are the kind of person in that company who only seeks the good of the other, who is prepared to serve the other at cost to yourself, When the world looks on and sees a group of people like that, it will be the greatest witness that you could ever give to them of the fact that Christ has changed you, that you are following the Master who humbled himself and you are doing his will and serving his people. The greatest witness of the church is to have love amongst yourselves. Do you realize that? We think it's because of the creed we nail on the wall we think it's because of the statements of faith with which we make. In actual fact, the Lord Jesus turns the thing on its head for a minute and says, no, it'll be seen in the way in which you, how you treat each other. Fellow Christians, it's not easy to love one another any more than it's easy to serve one another. Do you understand that? I used to stumble. I remember sitting in a church once and going around the circle and saying, do I really love that person? Do I really love that person? And then I say to myself, but don't even like that one. And you go, oh dear, I mean, let's be brutally honest about that. And then if you realise you're not asked to call to like anybody. You're asked to love them. What does that mean? For you to sacrifice yourself for their good. So you look at your brother and you say, am I prepared to give of myself and give up of myself and of my things to see that other person blessed? where you're getting somewhere to the understanding of what it means to love one another. We talk about the Lord Jesus loving sinners. Do you think he likes sinners? You say, yes, he does. Of course, he doesn't like this sin. He likes sinners, but not this sin. Don't talk like that. Why don't talk like that? Because what a person is in their behavior identifies them in their being as a person. You can't separate between a person and their behavior. They are what they say. They are what they do. They are who they are, and they express it in that way. And God could look at a sinner, and a sinner, part of me, is something that is repulsive to his holiness. It must be. But despite that, he looked at me, guilty, condemned to death, under the power of serving Satan, loving my sin, neglecting my God. And he looked at me, he said, for all that I will act towards Paul Isles only for his good, and at great cost to myself, at the gift of my own son, I will make him an offering salvation that surely even he can't refuse. You see, that's love at work. And of course, when you become a child of God, you prove the affection of that love, the warmth of that love. And when you have a brother or sister in Christ, you learn to love them and appreciate them with a warmth and feeling. But first of all, with a fact and behavior. And it should be the Christian circle. It should be a circle of loving and stooping and serving others. Now, it's not something you say, well, this is what I expect when I come to church. I expect everybody to love me. No, you say, I go to church because I'm going to love everybody else. That's the difference, right? You just think of uh, people leaving churches because, oh, well, (laughs) it didn't give me what I wanted, what I needed. Oh, no, I wonder if you went there and gave anybody what they needed. That's really the answer to that. you are going to sit up in your seat and beat yourself around the head a bit. (laughs) And we get the boot on the wrong foot, we go to get, no, we go to give. That's the difference, you see. Love gives. Love is totally unselfish. Love is not seeking its own. Love is seeking the blessing of others. And it's it's a tragedy that, you know, the church as such has really failed in this. You only need to look at the quarrels, at the fights, and the splits, and the anger. I I must admit, and it's a strange thing to say, I suppose, but It was quite a thrill to go to Melbourne and see 4,650 people. I was going to say from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and they were. From every denomination to goodness knows what to goodness knows who. From the left wing to the right wing if I could put it that way. They were all there united in one thing that Christ is King. The only answer to this world's need is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only answer to the evil and sin of mankind is the sacrifice of the Saviour. And it was grand to stand and sing with four and a half thousand people, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And it's so true. And there was that sense of fellowship. You know, it's just, a, just something that happens as we pass. But it makes you realize that's what should be here amongst us as a church together. Now, one other point I will say about this and the lesson from it, whilst it's so often a failure to do it, also, we have misconstrued the meaning of love. We have done that. <coughs> what do you mean? Well, we get the notion that, you know, if you don't affirm me, uh, well, you just don't love me. If you make me feel uncomfortable, that's a sure sign that, you know, you don't love me. You say, but love, love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrong. But please remember this: love does not enable sin. Love does not make me, you're not loving me when you make me feel comfortable about my sinful behaviour and lifestyle. We've learned to tolerate sin under the banner or hoax of showing love. And we like to avoid guilt, thinking that guilt is so destructive and so unloving and can only produce harm. I can only agree with what was said on the news, the radio, the, the television news, what Martin said. When I went into a church and I heard I was a sinner, I was condemned. I was rejected by God. It was the greatest and most loving act that had ever happened to me. He showed, served me so well when God convicted me of sin and he could show me Christ is my Saviour. So let's not, let's not get this all bungled up. I will mention this. I... I I was just listening to a story well this morning actually about a lady who's a christian about a lady who's been a missionary and how she's back home and she's doing a wonderful work as a midwife i mean and part of her work is to support people through abortion um you know it's such a hard time for them and it's good to have someone there to comfort them and strengthen them huh do you get what i mean huh I'm I'm being a Christian. I'm giving out Bibles at the same time. And meanwhile, I mean, don't get me wrong. My my heart goes out to these women in these places and situations. And don't get me wrong, they're blinded by the God of this world. But to, to be an agent in the name of Christ, making people comfortable with taking such a tragic step in their lives, please, that is not love. That is folly. And if anything... We will answer for all that we do in that name. Very well. It's 22. I better stop. I I wanted to just tell you something about the Lord's Supper, but I better stop. Perhaps next time. (coughs) Let's pray together. Father, we have read thy holy word again we have wondered at the activities of the Lord Jesus we have marveled that he could move in the upper room and wash feet we have heard his command to love one another we have seen him humbling himself we have seen him taking the form of a servant we know our God and Father that all things would be given into his hand And through that death and burial and resurrection would come the final glory of his name. We have rejoiced as we worship together. We have truly worshipped the King. We have seen omnipotence. We have seen majesty. We have seen power and we've seen glory. And we come this morning very, very grateful, praying for our fellowship together, praying for the building of this church, praying for the spiritual harmony and good of every member within it and praying our God and Father that we may have a true fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another, who serve one another and are there indeed to protect and to enable and to strengthen us each one, the other, in the work of God, in our growth in the faith, in our service for the King. O Lord, how grateful we are. We commit ourselves into thy good hand. We bless thy holy name and ask that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost might truly be our blessing till we gather again or until our Lord shall come. Amen.